You could spend the weekend doing the same old whatever, or you could conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Hey, everybody. Welcome into another Pipeline podcast. Tim McMaster here along with MLB Pipeline's Jim Callis and Jonathan Mayo. Jonathan back home after his trip to Cary, North Carolina in the Tournament of Stars. Jim is in Omaha where an exciting College World Series is unfolding. The final heading to a decisive Game 3, so we'll talk a little bit about that. We will talk about the Tournament of Stars, and let's look ahead to the trade deadline a little bit as well and see which teams are really well-equipped to make that big move to bring in that piece that's going to help them get to the postseason. So we'll talk about all of that as well as uh, some guys still haven't signed from the first round. The deadline getting closer, so this is when we're going to see maybe more and more deals uh, come and be finalized. Let's start with the Tournament of Stars. And all you have to do is look back at the 2018 draft to see how impressive the 18U national team ends up being year after year. And the Tournament of Stars trimmed the overall roster from 80 to 40, and then they're into the team trials right now. They're wrapping up that this week. They'll eventually get that team and roster down to 20 players that will play internationally in the Pan Am Games come this fall. But last year, 10 First rounders came from the 18U national team. This is another talented crop this year. Jim, um, it's just impressive what they're able to do to find all this talent and bring it together to support USA. Yeah, no, definitely. I mean, Matt Blood and company do a great job of picking players. Um, you know, not only did they have all those first rounders, there's a number of guys who are going to get first round bonuses or would have been first round picks if, if signability hadn't been a factor. I mean, they pretty much get the cream of the crop. And I think that. You know, the contrast when you're looking at the 18 and under team versus the collegiate national team is, well, obviously it's a great honor to play for for the United States or play for your country. At the college level, you sometimes get guys who, who want to play like a longer, maybe more rigorous competition depending on what the schedule looks like. So the college team doesn't always get all of the best college players. The 18 and under team almost always gets, you know, all of the best high school players. You know, this is, you know if you're a high school player, this is the best thing you can do for your development, you know, as well as being a great honor to play for your club. So you're going to jump at that opportunity, and they just do a tremendous job of finding the best players. And, you know, like like you said, 10 first-rounders and a number of other guys who, who could have been first-round picks or, or got first-round money, they, they do a tremendous job of finding the best players. The final game that we streamed down in Cary was Tuesday on MLB.com USA Baseball as well, and it was actually a mixture of the 18U, two teams that remained as far as that goes, versus the college national team, and the 18U guys actually won that game 3-2. to two. It was a really well-played game. They waited through a lot of rain early in the day, and they got it in. Now, the pitching in that game was almost all 18U guys. Three college pitchers each threw an inning, but otherwise it was the 18U guys throwing for both teams. But that was impressive to me because, Jonathan, we've talked about the fact that this pitching staff for the 18U crop of guys, not the power throwers that we saw a year ago with Libertor and Weathers and all of those guys, but they were able to go out there and basically shut down a group of college all-stars on Tuesday night. Well, you know, you're right. I mean, there weren't the the Kumar Rock or Ethan Hankins, uh, you know, in terms of pure velocity, and Libertor was obviously so advanced. Uh, but they, there was a bunch of guys who really knew how to pitch, uh, and you know that should should show something to you know to to scouts. I hope. 
Uh, and obviously, they look at everything and uh, have had multiple conversations with you know the sort of uh, love-hate relationship with the radar gun that the industry sometimes has. Uh, but you know, you look in the big leagues, and, I, and someone was telling me this when we were when we were down there, Tim. There are plenty of guys that throw 98 uh, and they get hit because that's all they can do, and it's straight. And then you have a guy throwing 92, 93, uh, but it's got a you know, but has a three pitch mix and, and knows how to use it. And those guys are really, really successful. So, uh, you know, I think that uh, there were, you know, a bunch of guys that we saw over the course of the week uh, who really impressed me with, with their advanced pitch ability uh, and an understanding of how to set up hitters and execute pitches and, and, and things of that nature. We saw a lot of really uh, efficient outings from guys who uh, didn't have that, you know, the wow stuff necessarily, but uh, clearly uh, it, it worked against uh, the collegiate national team. And for most of the Tournament of Stars, it seemed like there was kind of a lack of power, but it came late in the gold medal game out there. We had three home runs. Reese Hines hit a grand slam and then another home run. Austin Hendricks added a home run in that game. And now as the week's gone on, they've gotten things going. On Wednesday, Sammy Faltine homered, Corbin Carroll homered, and Tyler Callahan also homered. So I don't know if the wind was blowing out at the USA (laughs) Baseball Training Complex or what, but um, those guys starting to really swing the power bats. I want to hear from some of those guys. We did some interviews when we were down in Cary. One of them was Tyler Callahan, who I just mentioned homered. Uh, A fun guy, kind of a a leadership guy as well. Danny Wexelman uh, was able to catch up with him. Let's listen in. I'm here with Tyler Callahan. Tyler, you are at the 18U National Team Trials, working towards making the 18U National Team. What does this opportunity mean to you? Uh, Obviously, it's the... Sorry, that's not what I wanted to ask. Sorry, that's not what I wanted to ask. Okay. All right, here we go. Three... So I get to reduce You get to reduce two. All right, here we go. Three, two... I'm here with Tyler Callahan. Tyler, we're at the 18U National Team Trials. You're working towards making the 18U National Team. Obviously, that ranks number one in your world. Why is that? Uh, Honestly, it's just the atmosphere and to be around the best of the best players in the country while being able to represent your country that you live for every day and that people have died for you just so you can play baseball and so you can wear that name across your chest. It it means the world and I hope I get that chance. You are known as a conversationalist at third base. You talk to the umpires, you talk to the coaches. What is your best conversation and who is it with? Yeah, I talk to everybody that comes across me, even the players, if they get to third base, just because I don't know, I feel kind of inviting over there. <laughs> and uh, probably the best conversation I've ever had is with some coach in my high school, like in my city, about my high school. And we were playing him, and he said, Tyler, you know, I'm, I forgot his name. And he said, um, I watched you play a couple weeks ago, and honestly, you're just the best player I've ever watched, not just on the field, but off the field, how you encourage your teammates, how you uplift everybody. It's like just how you play the game with such passion and enjoyment. And he wants that for all of his kids. And I, that was really humble to me because just uh, being able to have that impact on people that I don't even know. Absolutely. At your high school, Jonathan Murphy, Daniel Murphy's brother is part of the coaching staff. What have the Murphy brothers, what kind of impact have they had on your career so far? Well, they've had an impact on my uh, athletic ability and my approach to the plate because Jonathan and Daniel really, um, really encouraged lifting the ball and okay. ground balls don't get you anywhere. They encouraged the ball to lift and that honestly stuck with me when we're ever in the cages hitting the top of the back net. They have a lot of drills for me. Also, they've expected me spiritual because they're great impact, great Christian impacts and they taught me so much that I don't know about myself as a player and myself as a person and it's really uh, helped me on and off the field. Man, that's pretty cool that he's a part of that coaching staff. 
oh, or yeah. comes around, hits with you guys, plays with you guys? Oh yeah, all the time. He'll, he'll take ground balls with me at second, teach me stuff I didn't even know and I've been playing the game for 15 years and he's just such an impact to me and his enjoyment on the field is awesome too. Jonathan uh, Callahan's big first baseman can obviously swing the bat for power. He's decent around the bag. I think he can play some third base as well. Yep. He was mostly at first base while I was down there. But he's a guy that uh, opens right up. You don't have to really dig to get him to talk. Um, and, and it seems like he's a perfect kind of guy when you're talking about building a team as well. Yeah, uh, from that leadership ability. But uh, it's also the ability to swing the bat. And I saw him play third early in the week. Um, Nothing really stood out one way or the other, uh, but you know some positional flexibility is never a bad thing when you're trying to put together a, a team. But what really stood out was just the professional at bats. Uh, pretty much every time uh, he barreled the ball up consistently well. Uh, you know uh, the power fits for that 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 corner profile. A lot of scouts really loved uh, the bat. Uh, that's why I ended up putting you know I put him at number nine on our on the top ten performers at uh, at the tournament of stars. Cade Doty stole the show defensively. He played left field. He also played third base. And in one game on the fourth day of games for Tournament of Stars, he made a diving catch and foul ground uh, from left field. And then he basically did kind of a copycat of Derek Jeter. Instead of going into the stands, he went over the tarp. But we had a side-by-side image that Pipeline tweeted out after the game. And, and he ended up being number two on SportsCenter, uh, the top ten list. So impressive stuff from Cade Doty. I got a chance to talk to him about those two catches and just being a part of this whole tournament. Uh, yes, sir. Uh, one of my prides in my game is the versatility I have. So, like, being able to play multiple positions gives me the opportunity to, you know, make a team maybe for not just being a third baseman, but for being able to play a different position. So, um, yeah, I mean, I'm comfortable from both positions, pretty much everywhere on the field, and, you know, that's what I take pride in. All right, so you're running back at the tarp for that catch. Um, do you know the tarp's there? Just take us kind of through it because you're looking back kind of over your shoulder. Uh, well, originally when the ball was hit, I just sprinted. like I, just, I was just sprinting towards the wall. And right before the ball was coming down, I checked to see if the tarp or wherever I was going to hit. And I, I saw that I had some room like from the tarp, so I knew I had some, you know, some angles there that I could keep going. So I kept going, and then I looked back at the ball, and it was just right there. So I put my glove out and caught it and fell in the tarp. And immediately you had it in your head to throw the ball back in, right? Yes, sir. Yes, sir. Um, that was right on first. Sports Center, number two. You know, just how, how did you find out about it, and, and when did you get to see it? Uh, I was actually laying down in my host family's bed, just you know, normal night. And I'm in a group chat for my uh, summer ball team, and they originally texted me like just out of the blue, like I wasn't expecting it at all. And they said, "Hey, Cade, you should check Sports Center. Like you're number two on top ten plays." So I was like, "Really? Like okay." And it was actually like 12. It was later for 12. So I ended up having to stay up a whole hour in order to watch the top plays to see that I was number two. The other kind of cool comparison thing is Jeter going into the stands, you going over the tarp, and just how similar the two yeah. videos look side to side, and you were <coughs> number two. It was pretty cool. Yeah, it was, I mean, when y'all posted it on Twitter, it was just like, I was like so happy. It was like, it's Derek Jeter. Like, how can you not be like ecstatic about that? Are you a Jeter fan? Oh yes, sir. Everybody. Yankees, yeah. Who's not a Who's not a Jeter? But you're a Yankee fan too. Mm, yes, sir. Actually, more Yankees than Red Sox, if that's you know. 
we'll let it slide. Um, uh, talk about just now you're here, um, 80 to 40. Just do the stakes feel higher? Is, is there more pressure? Uh, I wouldn't say pressure. I'd say more opportunity because, I mean, there's it went from 80 to 40, and that's a big jump, but now it goes 40 to 20. So, I mean, I have to do my best, you know, keep working, keep doing my thing, and uh, I don't know, just show the coaches what I can do. And, you know, it's the best 40 players, so, I mean, it, it's a grind. This week's going to be really hard, but I'm, I'm looking forward to getting after it. What would it mean for you to, to not, I mean, you're sporting USA now, but to yes. do it in an international tournament? Uh, it'd be the ultimate, it's the ultimate goal right now. It's 100% what I'm focused on, what, I, what I'm striving for, and uh, I'm focused on that. It'd mean probably the world to me. It'd be amazing. Uh, Doty stood out because he made, you know, Sports Center and, and national TV, Jonathan, but there was a lot of good defense played in the tournament. Yeah, there was. Uh, and, and that was impressive, uh, you know, as he talked about the, his, his ability to move around the, the field, uh, stood out. Um, you know, not a guy who, from a, from a draft standpoint, uh, you know, created a ton of buzz, uh, but just played really, really well all week. Uh, you know, did a lot of things. You know, it, the kind of guy that if I'm looking to put together a winning team, it's one of the things that when we had Matt Blood on last week, we talked about. You know, he fully understands having worked for for you know major league teams in the past. You know, what scouts are looking for, and a lot of the times it syncs up with what he's looking for. But uh, a guy like Dowdy, his ability to move around and play above average plus defense at multiple positions. Uh, is, a, is a huge thing if I'm putting together a, a 20-man roster to, to face international competition. All right, one more guy I want to play some sound from is Pete Crow Armstrong, and he maybe fits into that same uh, bill, Jonathan. I'll get your thoughts afterwards as far as not necessarily a top draft guy next year, but um, a solid defender. And, and the biggest moment for him was the ball he didn't catch, but it was a great effort on the Reese Hines Grand Slam in the gold medal game as he, cha- he tracked it down, went up over the wall, and just missed. That was my first question for him. And then he has some great answers in here as well about uh, his approach to bunting and overall uh, how he played. So here's Pete Crow Armstrong. Um, I mean, on Reese's ball specifically, it was a little different of a case just because, I mean, these fields are pretty deep and everything, and it wasn't a ball that I really thought was going to go out at first. You know, I, I knew he, he definitely touched it, but uh, I didn't think it was going to carry as well as it did. So I, did, I, I communicated with my, my left fielder. Uh, we determined that I was going to go for it. I mean, the ball was up so high we had that time too. <laughs> um, and yeah, I mean, I tried timing it. I was a little late probably, but uh, I still came closer than I thought. Uh, my knee kind of kind of restricted me a little bit at the end, but uh, I came close to it. Yeah, it, it, was a, it was a fun ball to chase down though, for sure. Yeah, it was a heck of an effort. And then Thank the you. next half inning, you come up to the plate with uh, two runners on, nobody out, and a chance for the team to get back into it. And the coaches say, hey, you gotta get the bunt down. Um, you do it not just to sack them over, but you actually beat it out without a throw. Just talk about your technique, because you said that you love to drag bunt, but that wasn't exactly what was going on there. Correct. So I mean, it's a it's a pretty tight situation there, and, and your main priority is to get the bunt down. Uh, it's it's not to get out of the box. It's, it's to stay in the box and get the bunt down. So you know, I, I feel more comfortable dragging than anything. So on on the, on that specific play, I decided to. Just kind of modify my drag mechanics, you know, and and uh, just do it a little earlier than I usually would, so I can still focus on getting it down, but still be in that position I'd I'd normally be to get out of the box. Spark the rally, bases loaded, nobody out. You guys end up scoring three runs in that inning. It was a it was a big deal, and I think people maybe didn't 
don't necessarily notice that kind of thing. Um, you're from LA, Harvard-Westlake sure. High School. Both your parents are actors uh, in Hollywood. Your mom's been in, in a pretty well-known uh, <laughs> 90s baseball movie. Um, just talk about how has that helped you? They've been in the spotlight. They've had to deal with the extra attention that now you're starting to get. Do they help you out with that? You know, my parents, they, they acted and everything. Um, it's slowing down a little bit for them. My dad's actually an English teacher now. He went back to school, got a degree. Um, and as a kid, like I remember like some, some certain fans coming up to them, asking for their autograph, whatnot. But I think like just the life away from acting they've kind of helped me even more than that because you know they've they've expanded their knowledge just doing different things now as, as they get older uh, that they have more to offer than just like spotlight and and, and how to handle handle that um, I mean it, it's nice to have that Definitely. Your mama's in Little Big League. That was right. the movie back in 1994. Um, one more for you. Uh, you came here, 79 other guys, 80 players trying to get to this 18U national team. Now it's the team trials down to 40. Just talk about, does it feel like the stakes move up a little bit as you get to this portion? Definitely. I mean, you feel a little bit more weight on you, but it still stays the same game of baseball. It still stays fun. I think it makes it a little more fun now that we're, we made it this far. It's, it's a blessing for sure. I kind of mentioned it before the interview, Jonathan, but is that the case with Pete Crow Armstrong? He doesn't seem like he's kind of a, a top-end draft guy for 2019, but he's so smooth in the outfield and just solid all around. Yeah, he, he may be a little bit higher profile yeah. just the, uh, because of the, of the speed, uh, uh, the speed element, and, uh, you know, and the fact that, uh, you know, that he does swing the bat pretty well. I mean, he's not like a big power guy, um, you know, maybe he ends up sort of being like a Mickey Moniac light kind of thing. You know, Moniac, uh, you know, despite his struggles now, his draft year kind of rose up because he started to add some some power to it. But um, uh, I think that that's going to help him. And anyone who saw Little Big League, you know, they may move him up a couple of notches anyway because uh, his mom played the, the mom. Yeah, and he talked about that. And he kind of deflected that as I, yeah, my yeah. approach was, hey, did they help you get ready for the attention you're going to receive? And he said, hey, they're just great parents. So I give him credit for that. Um, all right, so it was a great week down at the Tournament of Stars, and they're still playing uh, some games today, the college national team in action as well. Um, but but a great group of, of kids we get to catch up with and spend some time with. All right, Jim, sorry that we were away from you there for a little bit. <laughs> college World Series now, your time to shine. Um they're headed to a game three. Game two, though, was thrilling. Uh, Oregon State down to their final strike, facing elimination. Arkansas on the verge of clinching the title, and Oregon State just not saying goodbye. They just hang in there, get the big hit, then the home run, and they force the game three. Yeah, I mean, not even just the final strike. I mean, Caden Grenier, Orioles supplemental first-round pick, is up in the ninth inning, two outs, top of the ninth, tying run on third, down by a run. And he hits a foul ball that should have been caught. I mean, it was not an easy play. It was one of those that goes down the first baseline, tailing towards the stand. So you got the first baseman and the second baseman, the right fielder all kind of running in. And, you know, Carson Shaddy's had a great year for Arkansas, senior, uh, tremendous player, All-American. And he overran the ball and it dropped. And then two pitches later, or, yeah, two pitches later, a uh, – uh, you know, Matt Cronin, you know, Arkansas, very good closer, has a chance to be a, a first or second round pick next year. 
looked great on Monday night, throws a fastball, tried to jam Grenier, and it ran back over the middle of the plate, and Grenier grounds it into left field for the tying run. And then to Trevor Larnick, you know, Oregon State's got a, just a great lineup, especially at the top of it. Trevor Larnick, first-round pick of Twins, comes up and gets head 2 on the count. And Cronin throws him a fastball, and Larnick hit it. I, I don't even think it took two seconds to get out of the park. I mean, he crushed it on a line. He said he hit it with a lot of topspin. He didn't think he thought it was – he wasn't sure it was getting out. I, I will say from my vantage point in the press box, it was apparent when it left his bat that it was leaving the park. Um, and then they hold on to the bottom of the ninth for a win. It's, it's not the most shocking turn of events I've ever seen in Omaha. I, I was here for Warren Morris's home run to walk off and, and win the 1996 national title, but it's a, it's a close second, and it'll be very curious to see. I mean, Oregon State's pitching is still in disarray. It's unclear who they're going to start tonight. Uh, you know, as we record this before the final game's played, you know, Arkansas is a little bit better shape pitching-wise, but, you know, just in terms of coming back from a devastating loss, uh, you know, we'll see. That That's awful tough to come back from, but it was – it was very exciting. I mean, the park, Arkansas is obviously much closer to Omaha than Oregon State is, and it's very much an Arkansas crowd, but the Oregon State fans definitely made themselves heard after that amazing comeback. So I know you haven't been there for the entire College World Series this time around, but have you been surprised by anything as far as from the player standpoint? Um, No, I mean, a lot of the I mean, I mean, you know, in a short series, I mean, you know, Nick Madrigal, I think, is 0 for 8 in the finals right now. We know he's a better player than that. He's he's made a couple errors. But, no, I mean, a lot of, you know, for, for both teams, a lot of the, the better players have stood out. I mean, the, the best player in Omaha, and we had to turn in our ballots for the awards voting, which I assume we'll get back since the game changed last night. But I, I voted Adley, Adley Rutschman of, of Oregon State as the most outstanding player, even though it looks like they might lose. I mean, he's... I think he's something like 14 for 25, and, you know, he's, you know, I think has 11 RBI now, which is the most in about 10 years out here. I mean, he's having one of the best college World Series performances of of all time. I mean, and, and we've discussed him, I and mean, he's the guy who could be the number one overall pick in next year's draft. He's a, a catcher, plays a little first base, even does a little kicking for the football team. And, you know, I mentioned Larnick. I mean, Larning has got seven extra base hits out here. You know, he's got he's set a record with five doubles. He's got two homers. They are researching the seven extra base hits may also be a record. They they actually didn't have that in the record book. Um, and so you know, you know, we saw you know in game one of the finals, Blaine Knight, who was a third round pick, the Orioles pitched very very well, um, like he has all season to improve to fourteen and zero. So you know, a lot of the the standout players on these teams are having very good college world series as well. That's what you want to see. And um, looking back on Jonathan's top 10 mock draft, way too early top 10 mock for 2019, uh, he had Adley Rutschman, number two overall, uh, number one college guy. And then Shea Langoliers was in there as well, and he is down with the college national team, and Adley will be joining them as well. But I don't remember there being two college catchers that were that highly touted in one draft, Jim. Do you? No. I mean, it's it's uh... – I mean, catching obviously is, is, is there's always position scarcity. Um, I don't. I mean, if you're talking about two catchers who could go in the top five or ten picks, I, I can't think of a of a combination like that in a while. I, I thought I will rack my brain a little bit as we continue with the podcast and, and then see if something comes to mind. But no, I mean, when you think a guy, you know, like the years we have, like a Buster Posey or Matt Weeders, 
you know, coming through, you know, earlier this year with Joey Bart, uh, you know, there's usually not that, that second guy. All right. So great stuff at the College World Series and Game 3 coming up tonight or depending on when you listen to this podcast, it may have already happened. But Oregon State and Arkansas, uh, a couple of good games in the finals. Let's look ahead to the trade deadline, guys. And teams, if they're going to make a move, have to have the pieces to do it. So let's talk about the teams that are best equipped to make those moves. I don't think this is going to stand out to anyone or surprise anyone, but it always comes down to willingness as well. Let's start with the Yankees. Jonathan, I'll go to you. Obviously, the Yankees, I would think, willingness is not an issue. If they need to add a piece, and it looks like they need to add starting pitching, if nothing else, uh, they're going to be willing to do it. Yeah, I mean, uh, they're not afraid to use their farm system to, to make trades. Uh, you know, even with their um, sort of flipping the switch, you know, a few years ago and rebuilding the farm system and using that to uh, to turn the team that they have now, but now that they're back in sort of uh, competing mode and they have a deep system, uh, you know, a relatively deep system, they have some pieces that uh, they could trade for, uh, you know, for the right, uh, for the right guy. And I think, you know, the, the things we invariably do stories on, you know, teams with farm systems uh, that could, you know, used for trades like this and the things that you have to to the variables that you have to take into account are you know a need at the big league level as, as you pointed out uh you know uh, a willingness to trade and the, and the and the pieces to to do it uh and then finding that piece on the trade market right you may need starting pitching but if there's no top-notch starting pitcher on the market it doesn't mean you should go and overpay for it so all those things have to line up um you know, whether it's for pitching, whether it's for, you know, like if Manny Machado is the number one guy on the trade market, uh, you know, who needs a third baseman and has the prospects for it, things of that nature. But the Yankees definitely have guys that I think they would be willing to uh, to trade. And I don't know that there's anybody in their system now. Um, Jim, you do the, the, you know, the Yankees top 30. There isn't anybody who's untouchable at this point, I don't think, is there? No, I mean... I don't think so. I mean, like you said, I don't think they'll just overpay for the sake of overpaying, but they have so much depth that, you know, let's say that there is a guy they decide they had to have and somebody wanted, you know, Estevan Floreal, who's hurt right now, or Justice Sheffield, you know, is probably their most advanced pitching prospect, or Albert Abreu, who, who I like, I and mean, those are probably their three best prospects. I mean, if it was a guy they had to have, I mean, they have so much depth in terms of outfielders at the big league level and the minors and pitch eight, the Yankees just seem like they turn around. And, oh, here, here's, here's Jonathan Lucega who, who nobody had ever heard of a year ago. And all of a sudden he's throwing 98. I mean, they're doing amazing stuff with pitchers that, that I, I agree with you. The a, I don't think anybody's untouchable and D, you know, even if they, they made a, you know, four prospect blockbuster, uh, you know, they could put, you know, they'd still have a pretty deep farm system. Plus, I mean, you even wind up with guys like Clint Frazier, who seems kind of blocked from really playing and, and doesn't count as a prospect anymore because he's no longer his rookie status. That that would be attractive to teams too. So I mean, the Yankees, you know, if there's a guy they want with their financial wherewithal, they could take on any contract. Really, I know they're looking at the luxury tax, trying to stay under that this year, and the depth of their farm system. I, I would think the Yankees could be in play for for any player they wanted to trade for. That's a scary thought for everybody else around the majors considering where that team is at right now. All right, how about the Braves? That's a different situation. They're obviously maybe ahead of schedule a little bit with the way they've played so far this season. Um, 
I think maybe a little less willing, Jim, to deal some prospects. But hey, if you're in it, you got to make the move. Yeah, I, I think they'll be smart about it. Um, I, I don't think they'll just go crazy. I mean, they obviously don't have the financial uh, resources that the Yankees have to just take on anybody. Um, they are ahead of schedule, but I mean, they're continuing to remain a cop the National League East. So, I mean, I think this is a, a viable contender. I, I think they'll be pragmatic about it. If there's a trade they can make to upgrade the team, I think they'll do that. I, I don't well, you know, Manny Machado would really help them now. I mean, you know, Austin Riley is a very interesting third base prospect, and they could use some third base help. And obviously, you know, Manny Machado, you know, could shoot back over to the hot corner, and he'd give you more, you know, and more certainty than Austin Riley would. It's hard to maybe go pull the trigger on a Manny Machado trade to the Braves because Riley isn't that far away. But they have, they have so much pitching that I think, A, they could afford to trade some pitching. They've had their pitchers have come through at the big league level, I think even more than most people expected this year, which might make some of their minor leaguers a little bit more expendable. And then I think also, too, just with the attrition that strikes pitching, it would make some sense. You know, like like if, if the right deal came along, I could see the Braves, you know, trading a couple of, of pitching prospects because they, they have so many arms. But I, I don't think they'll just go ahead and, and make a blockbuster for the sake of making a blockbuster. I think more so than the Yankees, they will keep an eye on the future as well as the present when they're, when they're considering trades. Yeah, I, I think I agree with that. But, the, you know, the, Jim points out the, the thing that they have that teams will covet. Uh, so if you want to look at Manny Machado, that's where when all those variables line up, they could use some third-base help. He would just be a rental, so it wouldn't block Austin Riley long-term, so it wouldn't take them away from uh, their wanting to, to have him be the future at third necessarily. And they've got pitching – that is fairly advanced, you know, at the upper levels. That I would imagine that the Orioles, who are pretty thin uh, in their system uh, with with everything, but particularly you know, lack pitching, uh, that could be a really interesting fit. Um, but the Braves, you know, I do agree that they're not going to be the kind of team that overpays for uh, a two month rental. Uh, but they could trade a, a couple of of their arms away and not feel uh, the hurt in terms of it kind of destroying their long-term uh, plan of, of you know, building and promoting from within. Maybe Josh Donaldson, a, a more of a risk because of the health, but, but wouldn't cost as much. Maybe he's a guy they could look at as well as far as third base goes. All right. A couple other teams, uh, the Brewers, another team that is maybe better than we thought they would be at this point, although I think we thought they'd be fairly good. Jim, what can they do? Who's there to deal, and who do they need? Well, it's interesting because, I mean, I think they need – I mean, what they could really use more than anything is a starting pitcher to, to anchor the rotation. And, you know, it, you know, Manny Machado would look good in that lineup too, you know, at shortstop. Uh, you, know, Arcia had, you know, Arcia plays good defense. I, I don't think he's, he's really hit like people expected. You know, will they go out and make a blockbuster? Uh, you know, I, that, that remains to be seen. But, I mean, this is a team that, that made a serious run last year. Uh, they're making a great run again this year. I think they're for real. Um, and they still have depth. I mean, they have a ton of outfielders. They could – I mean, Brett Phillips is a guy who's blocked. Um, you know, they've got younger outfield prospects like Corey Ray and Tristan Lutz. Uh, you know, they've got pitching prospects all over the place, guys like Corbin Burns and Luis Ortiz and – 
you know, maybe Marcus Duplan, Adrian Hauser, and, and so on. I mean, they got some depth. I mean, Keston Hyera would be the guy you'd really want in a blockbuster. I think they'd have a hard time trading him because he's already established himself as one of the best hitters in the minors. Yeah, the interesting thing with them will be, I mean, between the, the trades they made in the offseason, you know, they went out and got Yelich. You know, the guys they promoted to the big leagues the last few years, their system isn't, you know, their system at one point was as good as any in baseball, and it's still good. But it, it would be interesting, like, if, I, I don't know if, like, I mean, I don't know if I really see the Mets trading Jake DeGrom. But let's say they did. I mean, he'd obviously be a great get. I mean, he's pitching as well as anybody in the big leagues. You know, would the Brewers, you know, pony up, you know, Keston Hira and, and two or three other prospects or young big leaguers to go get them? That would be very interesting to see. But, but I think if they did that, you could argue, well, that, you know, would, would be a move that definitely you'd be all in for now. It might make the Brewers the favorites to, to hold on and, and win the National League Central. And one more team, Jonathan, the Phillies, similar boat to the Braves, same division. Both teams are still rebuilding and are ahead of schedule a little bit, but the Braves are leading the way while the Phillies are, are a little off the pace. But they're a team that does have those pieces. Yeah, they, they do. Um, I mean, I think like the Braves, they're not likely to trade any of their top, top guys. Um, Sixto Sanchez is hurt right now, uh, but he would be, to me, the sort of the untouchable uh, the one thing that they don't have are advanced, you know, guys at advanced levels that I think would really excite people. There, there's some, there's some pitching at the reaching the upper levels, uh, like JoJo Romero, uh, but the, they they haven't performed that great this year. So I don't know that uh, you know that it would get as much of a return. And I think they're less likely uh, to really jump all in. Um, you, you know, they're they're not. Uh, leading the division, uh, they they do have some holes that they could fill, uh, you know, if they wanted to. Um, you know, I I love Scott Kingery and believe in him long term, but he's not exactly lighting the world on fire. Uh, nor did I, you know, think he would really be an everyday shortstop. Um, you know, with with I guess with J.P. Crawford out, uh, he's he's been playing there. Uh, you know, Michael Franco's been okay at third. Reese Hoskins is starting to heat up and left. I mean, so there are places that they could uh, upgrade if they wanted to. Um, but I, I don't know that they are going to do anything other than maybe some small incremental things. Like, you know, if, uh, a guy for the back end of the, of the rotation or some help in the bullpen or a bat off the bench, that kind of thing. Because uh, I, don't, I don't think that they're as likely to, to sort of go all in, nor do I think they have the, the pieces uh, or quite a deep enough system to, like, really make a blockbuster. Yeah, keep the eye on the future um, as well. All right, let's look back at the draft real quick, guys. 14 of the 35 first-rounders still haven't signed. Jim, you answered a question about this in your inbox this week. Five of those guys can't because they're in the College World Series still, or, or we're in the College World Series. Um, but overall, is this about where you expect to be at this point and you still have confidence that those guys are all going to end up signing? Um, the pace of these signings is a little slower this year. Um, I think last year... At this time, there were 11 first-rounders unsigned. Um, I think there's maybe a little bit more uncertainty with guys who, like, you know, we, I mean, it's not technically within the rules, but the vast majority of players in the draft before they're picked and the teams, you know, lay out financial parameters and, and basically agree to terms. And I think there's a few of these first-rounders where they were picked without that happening. Um, you know, the Indians in particular, 
Um, I don't think cared necessarily about Noah Naylor and Ethan Hankins asking price and they took them. Um, and they're not necessarily going to be able to meet the asking price because of the bonus pool limitations. I mean, they'll still be able to offer them, you know, over slot bonuses, probably a couple hundred thousand each. Um, I, I do in the end, I mean, we, we've got 14 unsigned guys. Uh, you know, you have posturing might be strong, but you kind of have, you know, I guess I'll use the word gamesmanship on both sides with some of these where, oh, you know, the team's not doing this, or the teams are saying, oh, the guy has to sign, you know, behind the scenes. And publicly, nobody's, you know, criticizing the other side while they're trying to negotiate it at this point. I still think when it comes down to it, you know, there's four, these 14 first-rounders, they're all going to get offered at least $2 million. Most of them are going to get offered $3 million or more. And I think when push comes to shove, they, they'll probably all sign. Now, now, could there be a failed physical we don't know about, you know, we typically don't find about that until after the fact. Yeah, that, you know, that could happen. So I don't think it's a lock at all 14 signs. But I do think that, you know, what you have with, with both of these situations is there's, you know, two guys still out here with College World Series and Nick Madrigal and Trevor Larnick. And I think both those guys will get done pretty quickly once the World Series is over. You got the three players from Florida and Brady Singer and Jonathan Indian and Jackson Coar who got done last weekend, and I anticipate they'll get done probably in the next couple of days um, for the most part. You know, Singer might be the most interesting of those three since he slid further than expected. And then of the other guys, I think you, you kind of have, you know, the, the players on one side probably trying to hold out for every dollar they can get from the teams because most of the teams have signed, most of the guys are going to sign, and everybody can crunch the numbers. And on the team side, I think you have them maybe trying to hold the line a little bit and maybe using if they can save the money on the first rounder, you know, giving it to somebody else. So it's kind of standard. Um, I still, I think if I was setting the over under Jonathan on number of, of these 14 first rounders who will sign by Friday, July 6th, I would probably put the over under at 13 and a half. And if I did that, <laughs> where, where, where would you go? Would you go over I, or I, under? I, I think I'll probably take the over. Um, I do think that they will all sign when all said and done. Um, I think the the ones that are sort of the uh, are, are giving scouting directors some extra gray hairs, uh, some of the high school arms, um, and that's where the that's what we're hearing the sort of behind the scenes stuff a little bit. Uh, starting with Ryan Weathers at seven, even Carter Stewart at at eight, um, and then uh, Ethan Hankins. Uh, down uh, at the bottom uh, at 35 to the to the Indians. Those are the ones that like we're hearing some buzz of. Oh, I don't know. Is this going to happen? Uh, and as Jim pointed out, like whether it's posturing, whether it's negotiating ploy, whether it's legitimate concerns, we, we don't we don't really know. But those are probably going to be the ones that go down to. Um, the last little bit, you know, the Indians have multiple picks that they have to figure out. So sometimes it's a, a, a in tandem kind of thing where they got to figure out, well, you know, if Noah Naylor gets this at 29, this leaves us this much for Ethan Hankins at 35. Will that get it done? Um, things, you know, things of that nature. And there are a couple other uh, high schoolers. Uh, those are going to be the ones who uh, I think will be the, the, the ones we hear about, you know, at or close to, to the deadline on the 6th. 
All right. Well, with the TOS and the College World Series wrapping things up, the next big thing on the calendar, I guess, is the Futures game. That's coming up in mid-July, obviously, in Washington, D.C. Uh, so I guess we'll start looking ahead to that soon, guys. But that's going to do it for this edition of the Pipeline Podcast. For Jonathan Mayo and Jim Callis, I'm Tim McMaster. Thanks for tuning in. Hey, Rob Bradford here. You guys know I'm always up for a good MVP story, and one of the best stories is Wasabi Technology. Wasabi is the world's hottest cloud storage company, and it's become the go-to provider for professional and collegiate sports teams, including 20 major league baseball teams like the Red Sox and NHL teams like the Bruins and Vancouver Canucks. Even the Liverpool Football Club is getting in on the Wasabi action. So why is Wasabi the MVP? Well, Wasabi was purpose-built to free businesses from skyrocketing storage costs and unpredictable transaction fees that the Amazons of the world are charging. In fact, Wasabi is up to 80% less than those hyperscalers and doesn't charge a cent for businesses to access their data from Wasabi's AI-enabled intelligent media storage, Wasabi Air, to the industry's only cloud storage service with triple protection against cyber criminals, data deletion, and ransomware. Wasabi's taking the lead in driving innovation in data storage and helping sports teams to unleash the power of their data. Wasabi, another Boston-based championship team.